Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Julius Baer podcast. This is Richard Tang, the China strategist and Hello Research Hong Kong for Bank Julius Baer. It's the beginning of the month and it's time again for our monthly conversation with Grow. Let me welcome Hong Hao back to our podcast to discuss China and how it's currently the partner and chief economist of Grow. Hi, Hao. Thank you very much for your time speaking with us today. Thanks, Richard, for having me. So over the past few weeks, we've got slightly better news, both on the policy front as well as the economic data. And the market also responded more favorably. For sure, it didn't surge, but at least there are some signs of stabilization, especially for A-shares. So to start our conversation, let's first talk about the latest mortgage policies from the central bank. I believe investors were generally positively surprised by the changes at the time when they were announced. Firstly, the minimum down payment ratios for both first and second homes have been cut by 10 percentage points to 20% and 30% respectively. The mortgage rates are also cut and the Ministry of Housing, we call it MOHER, has also relaxed the definition of the first home buyers. I think by now, most of our audience know very well the details of the relaxation of the definition. So I'm not going to take time to go over the details. But my question to you, how is, do you think there would be a lot of pent-up demand to be released by these mortgage policy changes? If I look at some of my channel checks, it does look like that, for example, in Beijing, the transaction volume on the first Saturday right after the announcement of the policy have definitely surged. But the following Saturday, we've already seen transaction volume coming down, although they're still above the average of August. So what do you think, Hao? I think most people think that by stimulating the demand, you can start the buying process again. The thing is that the policies that we're seeing right now has been tried before. So we've seen this policy relaxation in 2014 and also again in 2016. So those two rounds actually spurred demand for buying it, especially in 2016. Many of the people with the rural Foucault actually went into the city and become a city urban dweller with an urban Foucault through the house buying process. So that was 2016. And indeed, in those two rounds, by relaxing purchasing curves, I actually helped the rejuvenating the Chinese economic cycle. Now, this time around, things seem to be slightly different. So as you indicated just now, when the policy first relaxed for the first few days, there was indeed a recovery of demand. People start looking, inspecting the house, and also some people actually pump down money to buy houses. But at the same time, one has to realize that uh, this time around, we have a huge oversupply of housing. I think the oversupply situation is the worst in history, if not one of the worst. But then at the same time, housing ownership, house price are also very different from historical trends as well. You know, housing ownership is probably at all-time high. One-third of the Chinese household has more than two houses. So I don't know how many houses can you buy. And also house price now is substantially more expensive than before, especially substantially more expensive than before 2016. So especially when you compare the house price to income ratio, I think Chinese housing is probably the most expensive in the world. So in this background, if one hoping by relaxing purchasing curves to let people buy houses to resolve the problem, they might be a little bit 
hoping for too much. And at the same time, as we all know, because houses are still being built, so supply is still coming up. And also this time around, when we relax the policy standard, there are so many secondary housing that is coming on screen. So just now I mentioned that because many of the Chinese households have more than one houses. And therefore, as, as a result, as they see, maybe there's demand for housing, you know, they start to let go some of their housing, their own secondary housing inventory. So I think as a result, not only you have an oversupply of new buildings, and you have also an increase, substantial increase in the secondary housing. So as a result, the supply curve, as we know in economics, in the near term, supply curve is a vertical curve. So no matter how you change the pricing, supply curve is more or less the same. And then at the same time, now you add on a new secondary listing, plus substantially more than before, then therefore your supply curve, the vertical supply curve, actually shifting to the right. So as a result, there should be tremendous downward pressure on housing price. That's just economic 101. But then policy doesn't allow developers to cut their house price you know, to move inventory. So it's still not allowed. So I think as a result, you know, as you can see, there's a substantial demand that cannot be fulfilled at the current market clearing price, which is still too high. So I think as a result, that's the reason why we're seeing a brief spur in demand for housing. And then after a few days, it just died down. So I think we can't say the policies are useless, but we have to say that the policies are not addressing the focal point or the key issues that we're facing right now. I guess to follow your logic, probably the interest rates may also be a marginal factor, not the main factor affecting the final transaction of housing. Because the question I have is that in the past couple of months, PBOC has lowered various policy rates, but with the exception of the five-year LPR. And to be frank, I think the market, particularly on the institutional side, they were a little bit surprised that it was not cut. Obviously, the mortgage rates, uh, there was a bit of adjustment. But how exactly should we interpret this? Does that mean that the interest margin of the banks are so low that they can't take on the pressure anymore? Does it mean that someone else has to be helping with the lower financing costs instead? Yeah, I think interest rate is a sort of a key variable of this, right? So because after all, that is determining how much mortgage you have to pay each month. And I think lowering the interest rate on existing mortgage also is a key policy change as well. So that helped save Chinese households a few thousand yuan per year in terms of mortgage payment. So that way, you know, you actually give households more disposable income to spend on something else other than housing needs. So that's helpful. Having said all that, though, if you look at how the Chinese households actually buy properties, many of them plunk down 70%. So even though the down payment for the first house is like, I think 40%, I think for the second one is like 50-ish. I don't quite remember the exact percentage for down payment. But the actual down payment that Chinese households plunk down for a new house is on average 70%, sometimes even more. So as a result, as you can see, even though the lowering the interest rate helps, but for many of the Chinese households, lowering the interest rates on existing mortgage only saved them a few thousand yuan a month, a year, which is like a couple of hundred US dollars, which is nothing, right? Because right now, if you're in the US, if you buy a new car, because of the interest rate, it's at 7.5% for a new car, each month you're paying 750 US dollars for a new car. So 
that is like a, a year of saving for lowering interest rate on existing mortgage for Chinese households. So I just want to put the things in perspective. So I think as a result, lowering interest rate is very good. Also, in terms of helping sentiment to recover, helping to lower the household's burden, to pay for their housing needs, etc., etc., it helps and also increase people's disposable income. But I think the effect can be quite marginal just because of the habits how the Chinese household pumped down 70% or more as down payment when they buy houses. Sure. I think one obvious reason why the market has put so much focus on the property sector right now is simply because it has a fairly large ripple effect. And we already know very well how a poor property sector would hurt the other parts of the economy. But I think if we focus on the recent month or two, the recent financing challenges in the field trusts basically tell us that the financial channel impact is also now starting to bite, starting to materialize. And that Julius Baer would believe there are basically four major channels of financial impact from the property sector. First is the stock market, very simple, basically the share prices of the developers or any other related industries. Second is bond, and this is so well known already because of the massive defaults of the property bonds in the past two years. Third is bank loans and the NPL risks associated with that. And finally, the shadow banking, which includes trusts and some wealth management products. And after Zhongzhi Enterprise and Zhongrong Trust ran into trouble so far, we haven't seen other trusts blowing up. So that's definitely a good sign. But in any case, how do you see the problem at uh, Zhongrong, an independent one? Or you think other trusts or wealth management products may also face some sort of financing pressure sooner or later? Well, it's probably because it was not reported. There are bound to be other trusts that's going bust because the underlying assets for many of the trust fund products are the same, which is property. Historically, these products, trust products, were able to give people very high yield, 7 to 9%, sometimes even more. That is proven very popular among Chinese investors who are seeking higher yields. And also because for so many years, the property sector has been doing exceedingly well. Right, it has been a, a wealth-generating engine for the Chinese households and also for the Chinese economy. So I think as a result, the unsuspecting investing public plunk their money down for many of these products. And so as a result, the underlying assets for many of the trust fund products are more or less the same, which is property. So it's hard for me to imagine we, when we get to this stage, just how we analyze the oversupply situation and also how hard it is, the difficulty, the challenges that we are facing to rejuvenate the property sector. So it's hard to imagine the elderly property sector and its implication for trust and products can be an isolated event. So it's very difficult to imagine that. So I would say that the bound to be other underlying assets, which are properties, that is probably problematic or even going bust. It's just that we, we don't know just yet how prevalent the situation is. So they probably share the same underlying pressure. Anyway, if we look at the data, the data basically show that the developers are heavily dependent on the developer loans, and developer loans are provided by the banks. So actually, banks are having the highest exposure to property. Now, how, what do you think is the risk of MPL here? And will banks even need to do recapitalization to replenish capital at some point of time? Yeah, it really depends on whether there's a massive default on mortgage and also whether the property price would go down substantially. So when that happened, then, yeah, you can't avoid a bank situation. And also, 
at this phase of economic cycle where we are probably trying to emerge out of the bottom of the economic cycle, asset quality tend to be a problem. So fortunately, I think for many of the Chinese banks, they claim that they over-reserve for a situation like this when times are good. So this is the time to test whether we have reserved enough capital to cushion the impact from this property down cycle. And also, I think just now I mentioned that because of the down payment for many of the Chinese households, it has been very high. I think even for the Chinese property price down 30 to 50 percent, I don't think mortgage lending that is on the bank's balance sheet uh, will run into a problem because you plumbed down 70 percent. So even if your house price is down 50 percent, the bank is still cushioned. It is insulated from such dramatic price move. So I would say that, yeah, there are perils to this situation. There are perils about of you know, massive defaulting about house price collapsing and all that. But because of the over-reserving across the years and also the buying habits of Chinese households, the Chinese banks are probably faring you know, better than expected. So I guess at least we've got some buffer to this problem. Now, talking about financing, I think one thing I do want to highlight is that the total social financing, basically that's for the overall economy, has positively surprised uh, most recently. And finally, we got some good news on the data release front. And a lot of investors and economists were arguing that, okay, that one data point may indicate that the total social financing, or we just call it TSF, has bottomed. Is it true in your view? Or how would you assess the overall state of the economy right now? We're still bottoming or trying to bottom out. We have one good month of total financing numbers. But I think new loans is still one of the lowest in history. That means that we're still at the bottom, trying to emerge out of the bottom. And also one data point doesn't make a trend. Because before this, the trend was coming down really hard. So if you're hoping one month to change the trend, that's a big ask. But having said that, though, if you look at other data release recently, the PPI and CPI shown that the deflationary pressure seems to be a transient event. Uh, so we have one month of negative CPI, and now we're back to sort of a positive territory. Or it is probably more right to say that China is on the verge of deflation, but there seems to be enough policy in place to prevent that uh, risk. So that's one. And I think if you look at the Chinese export numbers, it's better than expected as well. And the uh, decline is narrower than last month. And so that is sort of helping. So, you know, because exports, exports has been one of the brightest spots for Chinese economy until late last year, early this year, when foreign demands for Chinese goods are sort of trending down. So then that way, exports is, seems to be stabilizing. So that's good. And also, if you look at the stock market performance, it seems to be stabilizing as well. So I think if you put all this together, you can say that, while you're trying to bottom out. There are many policies in place that is helping the economy to bottom out and all that. So we need more data to substantiate this point. But right now, I think in, at the end of August, early September, we're in a better footing than <laughs> two months ago. Yeah. And I think regardless of whether the economic data are bottoming out or not, at Julius Bear, we think that the important way to get the economy out of the current situation is simply for the central government to leverage up. And in technical term, it basically means that we transfer the leverage from the household balance sheet to the balance sheet of the central government. 
But I understand that a lot of investors or economists are skeptical of this idea, where some economists also share because they think that once the leverage of the central government goes up, it could lead to the depreciation pressure of the RMB. Now, I think different people look at RMB differently. They use different framework. Some of those focus more on the growth outlook, and some of those focus on other things. So, my question to you is: How do you agree that if central government step up leverage, that would lead to RMB depreciation? Depends the policy effects or the leveraging effects works on two ways. If the leveraging up actually help to reverse the economic downtrend. Then that way, the Chinese yuan should strengthen rather than depreciate, and then the other way around. If not, then well, obviously, then the Chinese currency will continue to depreciate. I had a been holding this view for a long time that the Chinese yuan's real effective exchange rate is actually at the bottom of the cycle, which is between seven point three to seven point four. And as you can see, like yesterday, under coordinating efforts. The yuan actually strengthened、uh, by one of the most in recent years. So that is showing that policies are having an effect on the Chinese yuan. So I would say that yeah, I think yuan has received a lot of attention for one because it's a cyclical asset that is very sensitive to economic cycle, and I think secondly because the offshore yuan is a relatively small market and therefore the price move can be rather volatile, erratic. So I think, as a result, many of the、uh, attention has been focusing on the Chinese yuan as a reflection of the strength in the economy, and also as a measure of how strong the policies have been or how effective the policies have been.、Uh, so I would say that, given that the yuan is at the bottom of the cycle, and also just now we mentioned that probably the Chinese economic cycle is also bottoming out as well. Therefore, it's intuitive to. See that the Chinese yuan as a major reflection of the Chinese economic cycle should be bottoming out as well. So I would say that the reason volatility in the Chinese yuan is actually a reflection of how pessimistic the market has been towards the, the Chinese economy and the Chinese market. And if you look at the Chinese market, right? So despite putting on one of the better performance globally in terms of GDP growth, the Chinese stock market is one of the weakest. I mean, the Hong Kong market is. Helpless, and the Chinese yuan continue to depreciate, and so you see a very interesting divergence between economic performance, so the GDP growth, and the Chinese asset price, which is puzzling. It's puzzling, right? So we had two good months in the beginning of this year, and there was that, and then we're all the way down to where we are now. The, the Hang Seng is below eighteen thousand. The、uh, Shanghai Composite, which is a major Chinese stock market index, is hovering around thirty one hundred. So that's puzzling, but going forward, I would say that this is a reflection, this divergence of economic fundamentals and asset prices, Chinese asset prices, is actually a reflection of how pessimistic the market has been towards China. Just look at all the negative headlines, negative news stories about about China. It seems that the country just can't do anything right, which is quite interesting. How the attitude of China has shifted from a few years ago. But I think going forward, though, if you look at what's going on recently in the、uh, commodities price, oil price is going up, it's strengthening to above ninety a barrel. Copper price is going up,、uh, iron ore price is going up. Right, so iron ore price and the metal prices, actually, the metal space is just strengthening. And normally, these are 
uh, very sensitive as a price towards Chinese growth cycle. So if you think of it this way, maybe people are so pessimistic towards Chinese asset price because they think Chinese stocks price is not the best indicator of Chinese economic strength, but commodity prices can't lie. So instead of betting on the Chinese stock price to go up, they're actually betting on commodity price, copper, oil, iron ore. Many of these commodities are essential inputs to Chinese economy. They're betting the strength in this commodity price to reflect the Chinese economic fundamental. So if you look at it from this perspective, it actually sort of makes sense because when you're buying commodity as a reflection of Chinese economic recovery, it's a pure bet on China. So you don't have the management issue, you don't have all the leverage issue, all the kind of stuff. And also commodity prices are determined by international market, not by the Chinese domestic market, which also has restrictions on capital flows as well. So if I was a manager, I would long metal, long energy, and then uh, put a, a short index future position to extract the alpha you know, from divergence. And so far, this trade has been working exceedingly well. And I think the trade such as this is actually a reflection of a nascent recovery in the Chinese economic cycle. And I think this is a trade that you know, people should be focusing on right now. That's a very interesting comment that you mentioned, how about the extreme pessimism in the stock market in China and the Chinese stock market not fully reflecting the economic fundamentals, especially compared to the global commodity market. And I think policymakers are trying to address part of this, especially related to pessimism. And one of the objectives these days is to re-energize the stock market. So a lot of policies have been announced for example, they announced to cut the SAM duty by half, control the pace of IPO, limit the, the amount of refinancing, to lift the restriction for margin financing, etc., etc. But market response is not particularly positive. I do think it, it goes back to what you said about the extreme pessimism of the market, or you think that those are not the core drivers, so everything that has been announced is more marginal. Yeah, well, I think the official attitude towards the stock market is important, sort of channel positive energy into the stock market. So people need that. But then at the same time, if you sort of focusing on chanting how focused we are to pop up the stock market, it's actually defeating the whole purpose. Because if you tied up your performance measurement with the volatility of the stock market, so you're bound to fail because the stock market price fluctuates all the time. And whether the stock price goes up or down is not a reflection of how good a job you're doing. Right? So to me, it's puzzling why they want to check the attention or measure the performance using the stock market price. Well, having said all that, it is still helpful in the sense that we are trying to improve the market sentiment. The officials are trying to help in all sorts of ways. So job warning uh, propaganda is one of the ways to pop up sentiment. But then at the same time, one has to realize that there's a new force in town in the Chinese market, which is the quantitative trading that guys, you know, the conference. Conference now takes about 30 to 40% of Chinese trading volume, sometimes even more. And I think that is the reason why, because many of the conference are high frequency traders. They try to exploit minute price difference between bid and ask to make a profit. So far this year, 95% of the conference are making positive returns, which is a stunning feat in a market such as this. 
So this new force in town, this Discord funds are trading. They do their best in the, down the range, down the trading range. This year, as you can see, the Chinese stock market is fluctuating between 3,000 to 7,500 in a very tight range. And within this range, many of the coin funds are using high-frequency trades to exploit the price difference. So because of that, as you can see, even though they're making money, because of the way they make their money, they tend to make the market fail to trend up. In a normal environment where you have a recovery in, in your economy, then you should see asset price trending up. So obviously there are ups and downs in this trend, but the general trend is up. But instead, the Chinese stock price is stuck in range. And that is because these quantums are going back and forth trying to exploit this tight trading range. And one has to say, judging from the performance, they have been doing exceedingly well. But then at the same time, they're not really helping the market to trend upwards. So I think as a result, it attracts the regulators' attention. Uh, so recently, there's a meeting uh, at the CSRC specifically to discuss how best to equalize the trade view between the coin funds and the normal investors and, and how best to apply uh, trading rules to all investors rather than only to specific retail investors who are substantially disadvantaged in this situation. You know, so there are many, many things that is restraining the Chinese market performance. Therefore, one should not be drawing a conclusion that just because the Chinese stock price doesn't react to all the policies, therefore, the you know, policy has fell. And also, one shouldn't be tying performance measurement with the volatility in the market. So they're both wrong. So I think overall, come back to the earlier point that I made just now, is that probably commodity price, especially the highly cyclical metal space and also energy space, are the pure a better bet on the Chinese economy. Sure. Thanks for your comments, Hao. I think at Julius Bear, we do think that the intensive policy rollout helps the stabilization of the stock market. So our view is that further downside should be fairly limited. But I guess for upside, it seems that the market still lacks a bit of upward momentum. And I believe investors still want more obvious and larger improvements in fundamentals before they're willing to buy the market further. But in any case, I think we just have to be patient to see and witness uh, how the policies from the policymakers uh, work in the market. So that's pretty much all we have to discuss today. Thank you very much, Hal, for your sharing. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and stay tuned for our next podcast. Goodbye and speak soon. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Bayer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbayer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com slash legal slash podcast for further important legal information.